0: Roland and Arthur The wish perhaps even the need to glamorize violence and romanticize warriors has been a part of human psychology since the dawn of civilization one of the oldest cave paintings in the world is an ancient mural discovered on the island of Sulawesi Indonesia in 2017 Daubed in red pigment on limestone walls, a cartoon-like scene shows human-like figures attacking wild boar and buffalo with spears. It is at least 44,000 years old. At the time it was painted, Homo sapiens still shared the Earth with Neanderthals, and the end of the most recent Ice Age lay two dozen millennia in the future. Yet one glance at the image shows us that a straight thematic line runs from the prehistoric humans who decorated the cave in Sulawesi to the themes of war stories from the Iliad to Saving Private Ryan. The compulsion to process brutality is the oldest theme in art. This being so, it is hardly surprising that when the Middle Ages forged a new way of fighting people came up with a new genre of art to match. The reality of going to war on horseback in the Middle Ages was objectively terrible. It was not only expensive, tiring and frightening, it also hurt. A skeleton found in the 1990s in southern England, recently radiocarbon dated to the time of the Battle of Hastings, shows the dreadful physical degradation knighthood entailed. The bones of the wrists, shoulders and spine bear the scars of painful, lifelong wear and tear, joints and vertebrae worn ragged by arduous days and months spent training, riding and fighting in the saddle. The side and back of the skull bear six separate severe wounds, administered with swords when the person was around the age of 45. These lethal blows were the reward for a life of toil and they were entirely normal. The reality for medieval warriors was a hard life, concluding in a nasty death, followed by the distinct possibility of hell as punishment for all the slaughtering and maiming they'd done. Yet the impulse among medieval fighting men and the poets who wrote for them was not to report this godforsaken reality in plain prose, but to overwrite it with a heroic new literature That painted knights as lovers and questers, whose ethical code perfumed the dubious reality of their deeds. As T.S. Eliot wrote in the twentieth century, humankind cannot bear very much reality. The first great surviving written work that sought to elevate and sanctify the deeds of knights is one that we have met before in chapter five, The Song of Roland, which dates in its earliest known manuscript to about 1098 tells of the warrior who fought for Charlemagne in the Spanish march and died, surrounded by Saracens and blowing a horn until his head popped at the Pyrenean mountain pass of Roncesvalles in 778. The Song of Roland is, in a loose sense, historical, yet its concerns are not for sober recollection of long-ago deeds or meticulous scrutiny of evidence. Rather, the song uses the setting of Charlemagne's wars against the Umayyads to expound on the natures of bravery, love, friendship, wisdom, faith and justice. It is part of a broad genre of epic, historical, narrative poems that are collectively called chansons de geste, songs of deeds. The Song of Roland today occupies a foundational place in French literature, as much as Beowulf does in English, and the Song of the Cid in Spanish. And no wonder, it is dazzlingly entertaining, melodramatic, and at times ultra-violent. The main characters, Roland himself, his level-headed friend Oliver, his weak-willed and duplicitous stepfather Ganelon, the Muslim king Marcil, are vivid and memorable. The battle scenes are steeped in blood. There is extraordinary dramatic tension at the height of the great showdown at Roncesvalles as Roland holds off blowing the horn that will summon help, arguing that to do so would be to betray the highest ideals of knightly courage. Accordingly, there is haunting pathos to Roland's last moments when he puts his lips to the horn, summoning both his king and his own death. And finally, there is rough justice. Few listeners who heard the song sung in the eleventh century late at night before some great lord's hearth would have forgotten the grisly scene at the poem's end, where, in the aftermath of Roland's demise, the knights Thierry and Pinabel engage in mortal combat to determine the guilt or innocence of Ganelon. When Pinabel strikes Thierry's helm, his sword sends out a constellation of sparks that sets fire to the grass around the duelling men. Thierry responds to this near-fatal blow by slamming his own blade so hard into Pinabel's head that his skull is cleft in two all the way down the nose. His brains ooze out. With this blow, the combat is won, says the poet. God, say the Franks, has performed a miracle. But this is not quite the end of the matter, for Pinabel has been fighting to clear the traitor Ganelon's name. Since he fails, thirty hostages, who have also stood as character witnesses for Ganelon, are taken away and hanged, and Ganelon himself is sentenced to be bound limb by limb to four stallions and torn apart. A fearful ending for Ganelon, muses the poet, in a rare moment of understatement. What are we to make of all this? At its heart, the song is a timeless war epic in which heroes and villains struggle, battle, live and die. But what sets The Song of Roland apart is its wholehearted advocacy for the values of knighthood. Its story is designed to reflect back to its audience the most flattering image possible of their own martial world, one in which the best life is defined by faithful sworn obligations between vassals and lords and the knight's near-pathological devotion to keeping his word and taking up the offer of a fight, no matter how insane the odds. And of course, at the end of it all, the ultimate reward for the soldier, as for the saint, is a good death. The Song of Roland is great, but it is not unique. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of other chansons de geste were written from the early 12th century onwards. Those few dozen that survive in manuscripts today can only represent a fraction of the songs that are lost and an even smaller fraction of the songs that were sung but never committed to parchment. Another famous chanson is the Song of William, which narrates the deeds of the southern French count William of Orange as he fought against Muslims in the late 8th century. A third is Gourmand and Isambartes, an interesting subversion of the Roland story, in which the hero, a knight from France called Isambart, is mistreated by his king, so renounces both his monarch and his Christian faith, and goes over to the infidel led by King Gormond. Unlike the songs of Roland and William, Gormond and Isambart wrestles with the dilemma of the knight who must rebel against an unjust lord. It has obvious links with the story of El Cid, and it paints in bright and vivid colours a sympathetic picture of knighthood, whose values of honour and personal courage are by definition virtuous. The knight, even as he renounces his oath to a perjured lord, proves once again to be too good for the world. Knightliness, like cleanliness, lives next door to godliness. Taken together, The tales of Roland, William and Isambart are not just evidence for a literary genre that boomed in the 12th century. They're a guide to the complex self-image of the knightly and aristocratic classes in the medieval West, particularly those lands that spoke dialects of French and Italian. Like modern superhero movie franchises, The Chanson de Geste spawned sequels, prequels, remakes and character-led spin-offs as successive poets and scribes refashioned the stories for their times. And as with superhero franchises, there were a number of dominant worlds with their own casts of characters. Those like the songs of Roland and William, which were set in the times of Charlemagne, were described from the 14th century onwards as being concerned with the matter of France. Others, which took as their setting the long-ago events of the Trojan War, the foundation of Rome, and other classical topics, were said to deal with the matter of Rome. They treated heroes like Theseus, Achilles, or Alexander the Great as off-the-shelf medieval knights. The third great world, which is today arguably the most famous and enduring of all, was the world of the Romances, set in the court of the legendary King Arthur and concerned with the matter of Britain. Tales of King Arthur are still fertile material for storytellers in the age of Netflix, and for good reason, even in their earliest known forms, concocted between the pseudo-scholarly History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth and the out-and-out fantastical romances of the French writer Chrétien de Troyes, They are wonderfully entertaining yarns, throwing together memorable characters such as Arthur himself, the wizard Merlin, the ambiguous Queen Guinevere, and the knights Percival, Gawain and Lancelot, in a sprawling universe full of adventure and surprise. The themes of love, lust, loyalty, infidelity, betrayal, questing, belief and brotherhood pulse beneath the surface of stories that feature mystical kings and beautiful maidens, holy grails and giants. Extended, reimagined and rewritten over the course of the Middle Ages and beyond, the Arthurian romances have long been vehicles for exploring aristocratic and courtly values, which have shifted and evolved over time. Always common to the tales, however, is the sense that humanity can be explored through the deeds of knights. Some of these knights exemplify their code. Many more of them show how difficult true knightliness, or chivalry, is to achieve. But to be a knight is always, by definition, a man's highest calling. Early in Chrétien de Troyes' story Percival, the title character is presented as a young boy throwing spears in the forest, teaching himself war and enjoying the simple pleasures of nature. He hears and then sees five armed knights in armour head to toe coming through the woods, the glittering hauberks and the bright shining helmets, the lances and the shields, the green and vermilion glistening in the sunshine. Convinced he must be seeing angels, he asks their leader, are you God? No, by my faith, replies the man. I am a knight. Stranger than fiction. Chansons de geste, romances and similar stories have left us a rich impression of the grandiose self-image of the medieval knight. Yet they were only one part of a broader literature exploring knightly culture, which we can refer to by the broad but slippery term chivalry. Writers in the 13th century produced texts that were effectively handbooks for chivalric conduct. The earliest, an allegorical poem of around 1220, known as the Orden de Chevalerie. The most famous, the Majorcan philosopher Ramon Louis's Book of the Order of Chivalry, Libra del Ord de Cavalleria. Later, in the 14th century, the French nobleman Geoffrey de Charny wrote another book of chivalry. Through allegorical stories and straightforward Agony Uncle-style prescription, all these books, and many others besides, laid out their vision for the knightly life, which, as time went on, became about far more than fighting in the saddle. As knights developed a courtly status and good standing in society as landlords and members of the noble elite, so writing about knightliness came to focus on its spiritual and emotional aspects. Knights were exhorted to demonstrate courage, honesty, charity, piety, concern for the poor and downtrodden, gracious deportment in the halls of great lords, purity of heart, and unblemished devotion to one's lady who might not be one's lady at all, but rather the unattainable wife of a social better. Several of these chivalric manuals describe the dubbing ceremony by which one became a knight. Whereas in the age of El Cid, an aspiring warrior was girded with sword and belt, and sent out to kill, by the 13th and 14th centuries, an elaborate ritual of purification Bathing, oath-swearing and dubbing had become the ideal preparation for passage into knighthood, a process not far removed from ordination into priesthood or anointing as a king. Once inducted into this life, a knight of the 13th and 14th centuries had far more to think about than simply where his next meal and kill were coming from. How many knights lived up, or even tried to live up, To the meticulous standards of treatises on chivalry is hard to say. The answer is probably not many. But there were those who tried and perhaps none lived a more extraordinary life than William Marshall, a knight whose long life bridged the 12th and 13th centuries and who strove to turn the ideal of chivalric knighthood into reality. He is often described as the greatest knight who ever lived, an accolade that would have pleased him immensely. His career is worth considering for a moment, as an example of what could happen when the literary ideals of chivalry collided with the reality of medieval life, war and politics. According to the long, old French verse biography of William Marshall, which was commissioned by his family soon after his death, Marshall's first encounter with the business of war came when he was around five years old, and King Stephen of England put him in the sling of a siege catapult. The king's plan was to hurl the boy at the ramparts of a castle held by his father, John Marshall. But William, demonstrating a childish naivety which would foreshadow his instinctive bravery in adult life, charmed his way out of certain death by hopping gladly into the catapult's business end and rocking back and forth on it, as though it were a playground swing. The sight of young William enjoying himself so gaily plucked the king's heartstrings. Although the boy was a hostage, and his father was defying Stephen by refusing to surrender his castle which gave the king every right to catapult him to his death, Stephen relented and saved his life. For the next few months, he kept William as a personal companion, allowing him to play all manner of pranks and games and generally cause mischief. Thus was the pattern of William Marshall's life set. The civil war in which he was caught up as a child was the anarchy, a struggle for the English crown between King Stephen and his cousin Matilda, the widowed former Empress of Germany. This war had been raging for a decade when William was born, in 1146-7, but it was settled in 1154 when Stephen died and Matilda's son, Henry II, became the first Plantagenet king of England. The Plantagenet dynasty's arrival was the making of William. Besides England, the new King Henry also controlled Normandy and the central French counties of Anjou, Maine, and Touraine. He claimed lordship over Ireland and harboured military ambitions in Wales. His wife Eleanor, meanwhile, was Duchess of Aquitaine, which constituted the southwest quarter of modern France. The couple produced a large family, with four sons and three daughters surviving to adulthood. And, most importantly of all, they did a lot of fighting against rebellious vassals, neighbouring rulers, and each other. All this meant that there were plenty of Plantagenet patrons for a hungry young knight to latch onto, and few years that did not offer some opportunity for war. From the time that he was returned to his family from the royal court, around the age of eight, William began to train for knighthood. His father sent him to Normandy to be educated for eight years in the household of a cousin who was selected for his chivalric reputation, a man who had never brought shame on his family line at any time. Although William did not immediately impress the other squires of the household, his cousin had faith in him. According to his biography, the man would respond to any complaints about the boy with a quiet admonition. You'll see he'll set the world alight yet. This was easier said than done. William was his parents' fourth son. He was knighted around the age of 20, but inherited nothing when his father died in 1166. He therefore had to make his way in the world by the force of his arms alone. There were some hard lessons to learn. In his first battle, fought in Normandy in the late 1160s, William fought bravely, smiting his enemies like a blacksmith hammering on iron, but too boldly, and he ultimately lost his horses, the best of which was killed under him. This was a disaster for a knight, whose fortunes rose and fell according to how many prisoners, horses, saddles and weapons he was able to seize while fighting and later exchange for ransom. At the victory banquet, William was ribbed for having fought recklessly instead of with an eye to profit. Having failed to line his pockets, he had to sell his clothes to buy a new riding horse and beg his cousin for a charger. He had more to learn than he knew. Fortunately, William had a quick brain, and he absorbed many of his lessons about warfare on the tournament field. In the 12th century, tournaments bore no resemblance to the choreographed jousts in front of soccer-style spectator stands that were popular between the 14th and 16th centuries and which have become a mainstay of today's Hollywood portrayal of the Middle Ages. A tournament in Williams' day was a mock battle, contested by dozens or even hundreds of riders who ranged across miles of open countryside, fighting in teams or in single combat, aiming to capture rather than to maim or kill, but not always managing to stay the right side of the line. Tournaments took place from about the 1090s and were advertised in advance so that would-be participants could travel, sometimes from hundreds of miles away, to join the action. Along too came crowds of spectators, entertainers, peddlers, stallholders, blacksmiths, horse trainers, fortune tellers, musicians, spivs, thieves, and ne'er-do-wells. The crucibles of the tournament were Flanders and the Netherlands, and the lands between the Kingdom of France and its Carolingian cousin, the German Empire. But as tournaments became more popular, they spread to other regions too. Borderlands between lordships were always popular locations, since they gave a chance for knights to play out local rivalries within a semi-safe context. During William's lifetime, tournaments became immensely popular. And no wonder, tourneying was a glamorous, perilous, rich man's sport, played by kings, great noblemen and their hangers-on, in which the going was tough and the stakes were high. On the tournament circuit, a knight could hone his skill for war and impress potential patrons or lovers with his ability in the saddle. When he rode into the melee, he staked his fortune, his reputation and his life. The church attempted on numerous occasions to ban tournaments, and from time to time, individual rulers would outlaw them as a menace to public order. But for the most part, these attempts were futile. Like 21st century raves, tournaments were part of an irrepressible culture that celebrated and indulged the excitable impulses of youth. As the author of a 12th-century German romance called Lancelot wrote, The tournament was a chance to win fame and honour. There one can thrust and slash at will. All the celebrities will participate, and there one can meet distinguished knights and ladies. To stay away would be a disgrace. During William Marshall's early years as a knight, one of the wealthiest and starriest figures on the tournament scene was Henry the Young King the eldest son and heir apparent of Henry the Second and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Young Henry was rich, good-looking and open-handed. He was seven or eight years Williams junior. The two met because Henry's mother recruited Marshall in 1170 as a sort of personal tutor to teach her 15-year-old son how to fight and ride. William quickly became a cornerstone of young Henry's household. He introduced him to the tournament field, rode with him and looked out for him. And in 1173-4, to when young Henry rebelled against the older Henry in a Plantagenet family conflict dubbed the War Without Love, William sided with his lord against the old order and, according to his biography, knighted the 18-year-old young king at the outset of the rebellion to mark his formal suitability to be the leader of a war. The way Marshall's biographer told it, the two enjoyed an impeccably chivalrous bromance. Young Henry, so worthy and courtly, more generous than any other Christian, who surpassed all the princes on earth in his sheer handsomeness, honourable conduct and loyalty. And William, the best instructor in arms that there ever was in his time or since, who devoted himself utterly to the king and never once failed him. This description of king and knight as inseparable comrades could have come straight from the pages of one of the chansons de geste, or Arthurian romances. And indeed, these were the stories that reflected and reinforced the cultural milieu in which Marshall and the young king moved. King and Marshall rode together, travelled Europe together, and fought side by side. They were lord and master, student and master, and brothers in arms. Yet life imitated art in more ways than one. In Chrétien de Troyes' Arthurian romance The Knight of the Cart, the tragic heroic knight Lancelot betrayed Arthur by allowing his chivalric adoration of Queen Guinevere to spill over into a fully consummated love affair. A recurring theme of the romances was precisely this difficulty in policing the line between chaste courtly love and actual fornication and adultery. Around the year 1182, William Marshall fell foul of exactly this problem. Having forged a close bond with the young king, William also came to know his young queen, Margaret of France. This acquaintance became a matter of scurrilous gossip in the young king's circle, and it was folded into resentments about William's prowess on the tournament field, where he seemed to be taking the lion's share of bounty and ransoms for himself. Rumours of a wild affair were reported to the young king, who was furious and ill-disposed to the marshal so much that he would not speak to him. The rancour this alleged infidelity caused was very real. William was forced away from court to take a few months' nightly sabbatical. He visited pilgrimage sites in Germany and spent some time at the Count of Flanders Court. He was eventually reconciled with the young king, but only just. In early 1183, the young king fell ill and died. William saw him at his bedside, and as they made their peace, he promised to fulfil by proxy a vow Henry had made to visit Christ's tomb in Jerusalem. This was no small undertaking, but to a knight like Marshall, whose life goal was to personify the chivalric ideal, word was bond. He spent two years in the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem before coming back, now aged around 40, to begin the second half of his career in Plantagenet service. It would be every bit as lively as the first. Having served the younger King Henry, Marshall now went to work for the Elder. Henry the Second was coming towards the end of his life and reign and beset on all sides by enemies a new Capetian king of France, Philip II Augustus, chief among them. In 1189, Philip tempted Henry's two surviving sons, Richard and John, into allying with him in a war against their father, now sick and weak. It would have been understandable if William had chosen to transfer his allegiance to the incoming generation of Plantagenet princes, for it was clear that before long Richard would be king of the English realm and John his most powerful baron but William put great store in his reputation for loyalty above all other virtues. He stuck with Henry II to the bitter end and was thus at the deathbed of another king when Henry died at Chinon on the 6th of July. During the course of the fighting against Henry's sons which preceded this, William came face-to-face in combat with Richard, a soldier prince already renowned across Europe for his martial expertise, who had come to be known as Lionheart, Cœur de Lion. Lionheart or not, Marshall bested Richard, killing his horse from under him, but sparing the young man's life. Let the devil kill you, he famously told Richard. I won't be the one to do it. This combination of chivalrous propriety with bloody lethality earned William a high place in the Lionheart's esteem, and, when Richard was crowned king, Marshall slid from one Plantagenet service to another's. This time, however, it was more than just knightly service he rendered. Richard promoted William handsomely, giving him extensive aristocratic estates in England, Wales and Normandy, and awarding him marriage to the wealthy teenage heiress Isabel de Clare, a match which lasted until William's death. Isabel bore him a large number of children and brought landed interests in Ireland. In return for this generosity, Richard set him to work. Between 1190 and 1194, Richard left his lands to lead the Third Crusade, a long absence made longer still by the fact that he was kidnapped and imprisoned by the German Emperor Henry VI on his way home. During this time, William was one of the lords tasked with supervising the English justiciars who led day to day government. He had also to act to restrain Richard's brother John, who agitated, decidedly unchivalrously, to take control of the realm himself. Like El Cid before him, William had now stepped up from the world of knightly adventure to the front rank of regional and international politics but he would still throw himself headlong into battle when the situation called for it. At one encounter between English and French troops at Mee Castle in northern France, Marshal climbed from the bed of the empty moat and up a ladder to the top of the ramparts while wearing full armour and carrying his sword. At the top of the ramparts he singled out the constable of Me and dealt such a blow at him that he cut through his helmet so that the constable fell down unconscious, battered and stunned. Marshall, now weary, sat on the defeated constable to stop him from waking up and escaping. For once, William Marshall was not present at the death of the king in 1199, when Richard I succumbed to gangrene after being hit with a lucky shot from a crossbow bolt while besieging a castle in Chalut Chabrol. He was, however, involved in the politicking that placed Richard's brother John on the Plantagenet throne at the expense of his young nephew, Arthur of Brittany, a decision that would ultimately prove fatal for Arthur, whom John captured, imprisoned and killed. For supporting John... William was rewarded with yet more valuable prizes, including the Earldom of Pembroke in West Wales, which linked together his now extensive English and Welsh estates with those in Ireland. Once more, his chivalric values, chief among them loyalty, seemed to have served him right. Yet William could not get on with John. The new king's character was neatly summed up by a chronicler known as the Anonymous of Bethune. "Although John was capable of lavish hospitality and generosity," noted the writer, adding that he gave out handsome cloaks to his household knights, "John was otherwise a very bad man, more cruel than all others. He lusted after beautiful women, and because of this he shamed the high men of the land, for which reason he was greatly hated. Whenever he could he told lies rather than the truth. He hated and was jealous of all honourable men. It greatly displeased him when he saw someone acting well. He was brimful with evil qualities. This was far from the only damning judgment passed of King John, who, between 1199 and 1216, enjoyed one of the least successful reigns in English history. Even a summary list of his failures runs quite long. John lost most of the Plantagenet's lands in France, including the Duchy of Normandy. He murdered Arthur of Brittany. He irritated Pope Innocent III to such a degree that he was excommunicated. He extorted so much money from his barons in taxes and semi-legal fines that he pushed many of them to the verge of either bankruptcy or rebellion. He wasted all the money he had plundered from his people on a hopeless war to regain his French lands. He drove his realm into a civil war, during which he was forced to grant a peace treaty circumscribing his royal powers, Later known as Magna Carta. He reignited the civil war by renouncing Magna Carta, and consequently suffered a full invasion of his realm by the heir to the French crown, Prince Louis. And in the end, he died, abandoned by most of his allies, having lost many of his crown jewels in the marshlands in eastern England, known as the Wash. To what degree precisely all of this was John's fault is not our concern here. What is significant, though, is that the Anonymous of Bethune, who was probably in the service of a Flemish lord from that town near Calais, saw John's failings through an unmistakably chivalric prism. John was not merely incompetent, an unskilled leader, unlucky or undiplomatic. He was also untruthful, dishonourable, lustful, untrustworthy and spiteful. For as much as William Marshall's biographer would portray his rise through life as the reward for his dedication to knightly virtues, so too would chroniclers like the Anonymous of Bethune ascribe John's freefall through kingship as just deserts for his unchivalrous approach to life. Knightliness, or the perception of knightliness, could make or break a man in the 12th and 13th centuries. It made William Marshall, it unmade King John. William fell out with John early in his reign and spent the middle seven years of it in self-imposed exile in Ireland. John summoned him back to England in 1213 as the wheels began to fall off his regime. Marshall used this as yet another opportunity to demonstrate his unwavering fidelity by riding to the service of a lord who hardly deserved it on any other grounds save the oath Marshall had sworn to support him on becoming Earl of Pembroke. He stuck ostentatiously by the king's side during the rebellion that produced Magna Carta, just as he had done during the last year of Henry II's life, when men, including John, had abandoned the old king and looked to a new regime. Even as England collapsed into civil war, he refused to abandon his monarch, although he allowed his sons to join the rebel side in order to hedge the family's bets and ensure that someone ended up having backed the winning party. When John finally died in October 1216, Marshall was, as usual, not far away. He took personal responsibility for John's nine-year-old son, Henry, knighting him, attending him on his coronation as Henry III in Gloucester Abbey, and going on to lead the war effort that removed French troops from English soil and reunited the realm under the new young king's rule. His final charge into battle took place at Lincoln in 1216, by which time he was about 70 years old and had to be reminded to put his helmet on before he spurred his horse towards the enemy. Lincoln was a dramatic victory which turned the course of the war. What was more, it cemented William Marshall's reputation as the greatest knight who had ever lived. When he died, a few years later in 1219, he summoned the young King Henry to his deathbed and gave him a solemn lecture. I beg the Lord our God that he grant you grow up to be a worthy man, croaked William, and if it were the case that you followed in the footsteps of some wicked ancestor and that your wish was to be like him, then I pray to God, the son of Mary, that he does not give you long to live. Amen replied the king, and left Marshall to die in peace. William Marshall's example matters. He lived through the zenith of medieval knighthood, when the potency of heavy Frankish cavalry on the battlefield was at its peak, and when the values of chivalry were highly developed in both the literary and political worlds. The biography that his son William and friend John of Early commissioned to commemorate his extraordinary life is one of the greatest documents extant from all of Western medieval history, for it represents the perfect fusion of chivalric literature with political reportage. Frequently, of course, it is self-serving propaganda masquerading as lyric history. We seldom see William behaving badly, moaning about his bad luck, or having an off day on the tournament field. But the account is no worse for its hagiographical tendencies. For it shows us better than any other work how the idealized knight's life could play out in practice. Although we cannot always take its assertions and its slant on events as objective truth, Marshall's biography is unbeatable as an applied demonstration of just how deeply the culture of chivalry informed and underpinned political events. It crystallizes what it meant to be a knight and it shows how one man, whose shoulders were broad enough to bear the burden of an exacting moral code, could materially shape his times. Just as anyone interested in the events and spirit of the years 1939-45 to must at some point turn to Winston Churchill's self-serving but majestic The Second World War, So too must all people with even a passing interest in the early Plantagenet dynasty, the wars of Henry II, Richard I and John with the kings of France, and the mind-world of chivalric Europe, at some point read the history of William Marshall. Knighthood's Legacy In 1184, around the time that William Marshall was travelling home to England from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the Benedictine Abbey at Glastonbury, in south-west England, caught fire and burned to the ground. This was a disaster, but also a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, which the then Abbot of Glastonbury, Henry de Sully, spied and leapt upon. In the 1180s, the cult of Arthur and associated romantic, fantastical ideas of knighthood were flourishing. There was a seemingly limitless appetite among the well-to-do of England and Western Europe for Arthuriana. Accordingly, Abbot Henry commissioned a dig among the charred ruins of the abbey, and his excavators found exactly what they went looking for, a double tomb in which lay the skeletons of a royal couple. They were identified on the basis of a lead cross supposedly bearing their names, as the remains of King Arthur and Queen Guinevere. The waspish Welsh scribe, Gerald of Wales, and a number of other learned scholars who curried favour among the rich and powerful, these were the medieval equivalent of what we would now call influencers, were invited to inspect the remains. They agreed the find was genuine. Thus were Arthur and Guinevere located. Glastonbury was on the map. And the Arthuriana which was peddled there By monk guardians of the tomb, would have important consequences for future generations. As time went by, the Arthurian romances continued to exert a firm grip on the medieval upper class imagination. When Richard the Lionheart left England in the 1190s for his crusade to the Holy Land, he carried with him a sword that he identified as Arthur's Excalibur. In the 1230s, Henry III of England's younger brother, Richard, Earl of Cornwall, took over Tintagel Island, a peninsula on the north Cornish coast, and built a castle which he actively promoted as marking the spot where King Arthur had been conceived. And perhaps most significant of all, at Easter in 1278, when Henry III's son Edward I Longshanks, reigned 1272 to 1307, was King of England, he decamped his whole court to Glastonbury itself to pay a personal visit to Arthur's supposed tomb. There, accompanied by his 12-year-old queen, Eleanor of Castile, he ordered that the royal tombs be opened. He inspected Arthur and Guinevere's remains. The couple were reported to be strappingly tall and winsomely beautiful, respectively. Edward and Eleanor personally wrapped the bones in fine cloth before placing them in the tomb, a black marble casket with a lion at either end. This no longer survives, having been destroyed when the Abbey was dissolved during the Tudor years. On one level, this was just so much courtly hokum, a secular pilgrimage enlivened with ritualistic theatre. Yet in the context of Edward's reign, it was more than that. For the chivalric Arthurian romances also had a political context, the matter of Britain. Arthur's lasting accomplishment was supposedly the fact that he had fought to unite the fractured polities of the British Isles under his own rule. At the end of the 13th century, this was no longer some obsolete matter lost in the mists of the half-remembered past. It was live public policy. The central goal of Edward I's reign... Was the king's drive to stamp English royal power over Scotland and Wales, so that he alone could claim to be the master of the British, preeminent over the kings of Scots and native princes of Wales? In theory, it was the Welsh who had the strongest historical claim to kinship with Arthur, as descendants of the Romano Britons, who had been forced west and corralled beyond the River Severn during the Saxon invasions of the 5th and 6th centuries AD. But by co opting Arthur, Edward was stripping the Welsh of their claim to kinship and the legitimacy of their independence. He, Edward, a renowned warrior and conscientiously chivalric king, was laying the Arthurian claim to be lord of all the Britons. Once more, knightly literature collided with politics, with real, lasting effect. In 1277, the year before he visited Glastonbury Abbey, Edward had launched a major amphibious invasion of Gwynedd, the heartland of native Welsh power in the north of the country. His huge army contained hundreds of heavily armed knights, who were far better armed and equipped than the Welsh resistance. The sheer scale of the attack was terrifying, and in 1282-4 to the King followed it up with another huge military campaign. This one culminated in the death of the last independent Prince of Wales, Llewelyn ap Griffith, also known aptly as Llewelyn the Last. Edward and his successors would now rule Wales as well as England. To make this state of affairs permanent, the English king's engineers erected a chain of huge stone castles in North Wales, designed to house knights, settler lords, and colonists. The grandest of these, at Carnarvon, Beaumaris, Flint, Rutherland and Conwy, still loom out of the steep North Welsh landscape today. Driving along the coast road between Chester and Bangor, you can still appreciate, or rue, the scale of Edward's fierce assault on the Free Welsh, a merciless war of conquest that took as its theme a real-life manifestation of Arthuriana. By the time that Edward I was living out his own personal romantic fantasy, however, the role of the knight was beginning to change. For one, their role on the battlefield had to adapt to innovations in tactics and developments in armour. In the British Isles, one of the most catastrophic days in the history of knightly combat occurred on the 24th of June 1314, the second day of the Battle of Bannockburn at which hundreds of English knights, under the command of Edward I's hapless son Edward II, reigned 1307-27, to were skewered by pike-wielding Scottish infantry marshalled by the heroic king Robert the Bruce. In the century that followed, English knights began radically to change their fighting methods, abandoning their traditional reliance on the couched lance charge, and often riding into battle but fighting on foot as what military historians call dismounted men-at-arms. They were protected by ever-heavier armour, which was evolving from chain-link mail to plate-style armour, in which interlocking sheets of hammered steel provided better protection from sword, lance and axe blows. No longer was the missile barrage of the old Frankish cavalry charge the chief weapon in the medieval general's armoury. Besides knights fighting on foot, English kings deployed longbowmen, often recruited from Wales, while their continental counterparts used crossbowmen, of whom the Genoese were renowned for producing the most skilled. Furthermore, by the 13th and 14th centuries, the way armies were raised was also shifting. Kings no longer depended so heavily on the feudal system of land grants in exchange for military service when they went to war. Instead, taxes, levied across society, were used to pay for contracted soldiers and mercenaries who agreed to turn up and fight on fixed-term deals, typically of 40 days. Knights were still an important part of any army for many years to come. Indeed, we may remember that as late as the First World War, horse-mounted cavalry were being sent charging across the battlefields of Western Europe, even as howitzers boomed and machine-gun fire raked barbed-wire brambled no-man's land. But by the 14th century, the knight's moment of military supremacy had passed. Strangely, however, this did not dim the allure of knighthood. Far from it. For as knights became relatively less critical on the battlefield, their standing in society was rising. From the mid-13th century, English knights began to be summoned to parliaments, where they sat in what became the Commons, the second, but today the most important, of the two English parliamentary cameras. This development was mirrored in the Spanish kingdoms, where caballeros had a right to be summoned to the parliamentary bodies known as cortes and in France, where Louis IX summoned 19 knights to his first parlement. And as knightliness took on new social functions outside wartime, so knighthood became the badge of a much broader-based social class, known as the gentry. Noblemen would still be knighted as a matter of course, for knighthood was still linked to the martial spirit of the baronial caste and its tropes of masculinity. But it also extended down to the families who were wealthy but not rich, who controlled estates but not regions, who fought in wars but did not command divisions, and whose jobs in peacetime included serving as members of Parliament, judges, sheriffs, coroners and tax collectors. By and by, these tasks overtook military duties of knights, to the point where gentlemen became somewhat loath to seek knighthood at all. In England, they were sometimes compelled for tax purposes to do so, in a process known as distraint of knighthood. There is more, far more, we could say on this topic. For now, though, it is worth considering briefly the astonishing longevity of knighthood, which outlasted the existence of actual knights by around 500 years. In the 16th century, long after guns and cannon and professional armies had arrived and any vestiges of feudal government had disappeared, the allure of armoured cavalry, knightliness and chivalry still remained irresistible to the European upper classes. It was still just possible for knights to earn the sort of international renown that El Cid and William Marshall had enjoyed. One such was the German freelance mercenary and poet Gottfried von Berlichingen, better known as Gotts of the Iron Hand. In an episode that rather summed up the impending redundancy of knightly combat skills, von Berlichingen lost his sword hand to cannon fire in 1504, when he was helping to besiege a city in Bavaria. But he continued his military career, thanks to a prosthetic lower right arm, and spent his life sniffing out trouble across the German Empire, where he specialised in engaging in blood feuds. He also, in the 1520s, led a rebel militia in the German Peasants' War. By some miracle, von Berlichingen lived until the 1560s, when he was in his 80s, and died at home in his bed. And von Berlichingen was hardly the only advertisement for the physical dangers of the chivalric life in the twilight of the Middle Ages. In 1524, Gotz's contemporary... King Henry VIII of England, was badly injured while jousting at a tournament. Undaunted, Henry continued to joust until it happened again. In 1536, an even more serious fall in the lists damaged his health permanently and nearly cost him his life, much to the terror of his court and then Queen Anne Boleyn. And even this did not dampen his enthusiasm for the trappings of knighthood, which was an essential part of his self-image. A visitor to the Tower of London or Windsor Castle today can see the gargantuan suits of armour Henry commissioned around the time of his last military campaigns in France in the 1540s. Armour that would have been quite useless had the king ever been hit with a cannonball, but which advertised his self-image as a chivalrous soldier in the Romantic tradition stretching back centuries before his birth. Nor was Henry the last English king to indulge in medieval cosplay. The Tower of London also displays fine, ornately decorated suits of armour made for Charles I, 1625-49, to 49, and James II, 1685-88, to 88, neither of whom, despite the troubles of their reigns, had much real use for medieval armour beyond ceremonial showboating. Yet the appurtenances of knighthood were by their times tightly woven into the fabric of monarchy and aristocracy. Indeed, they still are. Today, one of the highest and exclusive public honours in the United Kingdom is the Award of Knighthood. More exclusive still is membership of the Order of the Garter, an Arthurian-style club originally founded for two dozen jousting partners of Edward III in 1348. Current members of the Order of the Garter include senior members of the royal family, former prime ministers, high-ranking civil servants, spies, bankers, generals and courtiers. Members known as Stranger Knights, selected from overseas royalty, include the monarchs of Denmark, Spain, Japan, Sweden and the Netherlands. Yet the United Kingdom has no monopoly on modern chivalry. Institutions of knighthood still exist across the world including in Austria, Denmark, Germany, Italy, Poland, Scotland, Spain and Sweden. Even in the United States, one can find knights and knightly institutions. While writing this book, I attended an investiture ceremony of a modern-day American chivalric order held at a church in Nashville, Tennessee. The new knights and dames were formally dubbed with a sword in a ceremony constructed on the basis of the multi-volume, heavily romanticised 20th century history of the Plantagenet dynasty by the Canadian-born author Thomas Costain. They thereby became members of a private chivalric networking club that boasted among its members two-star and three-star military generals, members of the US security services, judges, lawyers and Wall Street financiers. It struck me then that knighthood is today as it always was, an avowedly elite and international affair, partly fantastical and sometimes outright silly, less a way of fighting and far more a set of shared assumptions, but an institution that once comprised the philosophy of the most powerful people in the West and allowed them to shape the world around them.